Let's pray. Lord, it is a privilege to come and study your word. Where would we be without your word? The revelation of who you are, what you expect of us, inspired, inerrant, infallible, incapable of error, truth. And your Holy Spirit is the one who illumines us. It is your Holy Spirit who regenerates us, brings us into the kingdom of God, as it were, and teaches us. So instruct us, O Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus' name, amen. We are in John chapter 13, and this evening we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 38 to the end of John chapter 13. What we have seen so far in, in John chapter 13 is that the Lord Jesus is instituting the Last Supper. It is the inauguration of the new covenant. It is Jesus is our Passover, and his arrest is only hours away. The hour and the power of darkness is imminent. And Jesus reveals during that supper that a close friend will betray him. In fulfillment of prophecy, it was Psalm 41 that says that a close friend would raise up his heel against him. All of this was determined, prophesied, predestined to happen. We learned that the devil fills the heart of Judas Iscariot while he's at uh, the supper, who's partaking the supper with all the other disciples. He has already cut the deal with the Sanhedrin earlier in the week to betray Jesus at the appropriate time for 30 pieces of silver. And during the supper, Jesus says, what you must do, go do quickly. And then Judas leaves. And the rest of the disciples we saw, they still didn't understand why Judas left the meal. They still didn't understand that he would betray them. They will soon find out that he will be the one. So the Jesus says in John 13, 31, he says, it records Jesus as saying, once Judas leaves, his arrest is only hours away. And then that's why Jesus says, the son of man and the father will be glorified. Now, how is this, again, it is very important we understand this. How is it that Jesus said, the son of man will be glorified and the Father will be glorified. Well, the whole purpose of the eternal Son coming into this world was in the incarnation of God taking upon himself human flesh was to save the people whom God had chose before the foundation of the world, his elect, to save them from their sins. After all, that's what the angel revealed to Joseph and Mary that in the name that you're to call this son that will be born, you're to call his name Jesus, for his name means he will save his people from their sins. We understand so that it was absolutely essential that God become a man in order to save us. 
We know from the scriptures that God is holy, right? And being holy, he demands perfection to his law. His law is simply a a reflection of who he is, what he expects. And since we cannot ourselves save ourselves, and the reason we can't save ourselves is we cannot give God the Father the perfection that he demands. He demands absolute perfection to his law. And so in order for God to save us, two things have got to happen. One is that there has to be a penalty paid for the transgression of his law. God is holy. God is just. God says the soul that sins must die. So someone has got to die. Someone has to pay the penalty for having transgressed God's holy law. So that has to happen in order for us to be saved. I want you to turn. We have looked at this passage in Isaiah before, but it is so important. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Look at verse 10. why it was necessary for there to be a penalty for sin. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It pleased the father to crush the son. And that explains, as we mentioned last week, when Jesus was on the cross, when he finally cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was absolutely essential at that moment for God the Father to turn his face, to abandon the son, as Isaiah says, to crush the son because without the crushing of the son, without the guilt offering being paid, there would have been no satisfaction of God's holiness, his wrath, his justice. His justice must be maintained. So Jesus had to die. And that's why when right before he gives up the spirit, it says, it is finished. What is finished? The guilt offering, the atonement for sin has been paid. It has been done. I have accomplished everything that the Father gave me to do. I came in this world for one purpose, to die from in sins. And that's what has happened. I have paid the price and the Father's justice has been met. So that has to happen. There's got to be the payment of the penalty for sin. So... That's how the Father is glorified. And we're told that uh, another thing that has to happen is that there has to be the perfect law-keeping of the Messiah to impute, to credit his righteousness to us so that we can give God the holiness 
that his law requires. Now, since you and I cannot give that personal holiness, God has allowed there to be a provision of a substitute, which is the son. And so that son gives the father that holiness. That's why we're told, if you, if you look at our text in, in John, if you turn back to John 13, there in verse 33, he says, uh, little children, I am with you a little longer. You shall seek me, and I said to the Jews, and now I may say to you, where I'm going, you, you cannot come. So, in order for God to save us, he says, the Son's going to be glorified, the Father is going to be glorified, and that's how we're both glorified. The Son is glorified because he came and did exactly what the Father told him to do. Now, when Jesus says here in verse 33, he addresses his disciples as little children. You know, this is the only place in the gospel accounts where this is found. Now, it's used over in 1 John. Of course, John, the apostle, is the author of the epistles and where he refers to us as little children. And by using these terms, what we need to understand is even though the disciples are very immature, as it's revealed as you go through the, uh, the scriptures and the ministry of Jesus, they were very immature. And, but even though they were very immature, they were dear to Jesus. And he calls them little children. And we're going to see when we get to John 17 in what is known as the Jesus' high priestly prayer, he talks about uh, his relationship to his disciples. Now, Jesus said to his disciples at the night of the Last Supper, the institution says, where I'm going, you're not going to be able to come because I'm going to the Father shortly. And they cannot come, but he says in verse 36, you're going to follow me at some point. In other words, when you die, you will follow me. You know, there in verse 34 of John 13, um, he sets forth a, a, a glorious truth. And when he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, as you read that, <clears throat> one thing, if you know the Old Testament, you're going to understand the commandment to love one another was not new. It's actually found in the Old Testament. It's found in Luke, I mean, uh, Levi, I mean, <laughs> Leviticus 19.18, where we're told... He's, uh, Israel is exhorted to love thy neighbor as thyself. And you think, well, that sounds familiar. Well, it ought to sound familiar because Jesus says in Matthew, for example, one of the gospel writers, in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, he's answering the question of a lawyer who says, what, what are the greatest commandments? 
And Jesus says, well, there are two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is merely picking up what Leviticus said. So, and as you, you take a look at the Ten Commandments, which are the summary of God's law, it has uh, been known that you can divide the law of God into two parts, it's normally called the two tables of the law, the first four dealing with our love towards God and the last, uh, next six, our love towards our neighbor. Now, in answering that question, what is the greatest of the commandments? Actually, the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter five, verse 14, he says, for the whole law can be fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you might think, well, I thought Jesus said there are two great commandments. So why does the apostle say it can all be summarized in one commandment? Well, there's no contradiction here in Scripture. First of all, it's helpful to know this. I want you to turn over to 1 John chapter 4 and look at verses 20 through 21. First John 4, 20, 21. Probably wouldn't hurt to look at verse 19 as well. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that one who loves God should love his brother also. So we can understand why the apostle Paul would say the whole law can actually be summarized to love your neighbor as yourself because when we love our neighbor truly as ourselves, then we're demonstrating that we actually love God. If we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, then that means, according to the word of God, we don't love the Father. We don't love God. So a person says, well, I love God, but I don't, I'm not showing the love to my, my brother and my neighbor. That's why the Bible says, well, you're a liar. You can't do that. That's not how it operates. God says, you got to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, so in John, if you turn back to John 13 itself, so what did Jesus mean when he said, a new commandment I give to you? If the commandment to love is not new, what is the newness about the command he, he was giving? Well, the newness is, and look at the text. Look what it says in verse 34. The newness is to love one another as I have loved you. That's the newness. Now, the, 
For example, we, we've already seen in John 13, particularly in verses 14 and, and, and 15, what was the example that Jesus gave to his disciples? When he first got to the supper, he washed their feet, right? It was a custom when you went to meals to wash feet. And usually, usually as we have said, it was done not by the owner of the house. It was done by a servant of the house. Actually, the disciples should have took it upon themselves to start washing one another's feet. And Jesus is the one who does it. And he says, now, do you know what I've just, he, he says, do you know what I've just done for you? I've given you an example that you should do to others. And it's not so much the foot washing. You know, when I was in college, I decided there was a church. I think it was a charismatic church that had a foot washing ceremony. I actually went to the foot washing. It is kind of a humbling thing, but we got to understand why Jesus gave that. He says, I gave this as an example. Oh, what kind of example? Well, I'm your servant. That's the example I have set for you. I want us to turn again to Philippians chapter 2 and look at verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Stop right there. You know what real humility is? Real biblical humility is when you and I put other people's interests above our own. That's humility. Verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And you wonder, well, what attitude was that? Well, he's about to tell us. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not hold on to the glory that he had with the Father and the Spirit as something so great that he was not willing to come into this world. So he, when it says he emptied himself, it's not what some liberal theologian says, well, the, uh, Jesus or the Son emptied himself of his divinity called the kenosis theory. No, that is not true. What he emptied himself was he did not think being equal with God was something so great that he not, was not willing not to come. So he is willing to come, and it says there in verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So Jesus came to earth to save sinners and he came to earth to, to give himself to be a servant to sacrificially give up his life 
He put the interests of us ahead of his own. He went to the cross. He was the servant of the most utmost uh, example to put the interests of others above his own, became obedient to die a death, a agonizing physical death, but the worst of all we've said, the fact that he would be forsaken of the father. You know, in the uh, Apostles' Creed, when it says he descended into hell, the best understanding of that is that uh, the Reformed confessions have understood it this way. What he experienced on the cross and in his burial, he experienced hell. When the Father forsook the Son, on Calvary's cross, and Jesus immediately felt the, the loneliness, the abandonment. That's what hell is. That is what hell is. The lack of any kind of, you know, while we live in this world, God is good to unbelievers because Jesus says the rain falls on the good and the, unri- the unrighteous alike. And there are a lot of things that unbelievers get Uh, experience the goodness of God, but in hell there is no experiencing, only the wrath of God. So Jesus was the ultimate servant in sacrificing himself for us. So, now do you remember I mentioned, John doesn't mention in his gospel account, but Luke does, At the Last Supper, at some point, amazingly, the disciples get into an argument as to who's the greatest among them. Uh, I've always found that incredible. But you got to understand the immaturity of the disciples, and they were immature. Remember, you know, a lot of that immaturity is the result. The Holy Spirit has not been poured out on them in the fullness of, until the day of Pentecost. At the day of Pentecost, that's totally different with these disciples. Now, they do have the Spirit, but they don't have the Spirit in the, of the magnitude until Pentecost arises. Now, <clears throat> Jesus said to the disciples there in, in, in Luke's version, he says, you know, there's no, there's no problem in wanting to be great But he says, it's how you want to be great. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how to be great. You want to be great in my kingdom? Here's how you do it. Become the servant of others. In other words, don't be arguing among yourselves. He says, that's what the the unbelievers do. The Gentiles, they they want to sit in the places of... uh, uh, next to high authorities. They want those places of honor. And Jesus says, no, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you need to be humble. And being humble means you need to serve other people. So, and after all, Jesus said, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 20, verse 27. He says, And whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There it is. That's how you be great. There's the example I gave. I came as a servant. You're to be a servant. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He was, as John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this newness of commandment that Jesus gave in John 13 is to love one another as I have loved you, meaning you got to learn to be to sacrifice on behalf of the uh, of other people. Now you know that is not easy. You probably know it's not easy, right? You know why it's not easy? Well, let's face it, we're all self-centered. <laughs> it's it's just the reality of our sin nature. We're self-centered, and it is hard to put the interests of others above our own. But that is what we are called to do. The new commandment, Jesus says, I want you to love by being a servant to one another. Now, this is how the world knows that the Christian faith is different than anything else. And what separates true Christianity from all other religions in the world, essentially. You know, one of the uh, early church fathers by the name of Tertullian, who wrote in 200 AD, here's what Tertullian said in his apology that he wrote in 200 AD. Here's what he said. But is mainly the deeds of love so noble that leads many to put a brand upon us? See, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred, talking about the world. See how they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves would rather be put to death. That's what Tertullian said. One of the things that amazed the Roman world was that these Christians would die for one another, would sacrifice one another. By the way, you know, it was the Christians who went out and rescued abandoned babies thrown by the... uh, by the roadside, most of the time they had such a low esteem of females, it was often female babies they just put out on the side. The Athenians did it, the Spartans did it. They're not noble, they were just pagan heathens. They didn't care about these people. It was the Christians who were known to come and take these babies and adopt them and raise them. And people knew that. Tertullian says it's what sets us apart from others. I I can never forget, you know, I've told you I was involved in a ministry called the Navigators when I was in college, emphasized a lot of discipleship. And we were at a conference actually in Toccoa, Georgia in about 1972. 
Our ministry uh, was not your normal navigator ministry that began in the military. Uh, <laughs> we did not look like the uh, typical navigator ministry. Some guys had long hair and all this, and we were from Tennessee. We were hillbillies, and we were just not cut out of the same mold as your typical navigator ministry. I'll never forget at Tekoa, one of the leaders of the whole region came up and said to us, gave our ministry the greatest compliment that I think we ever received. He said, you know, you guys, you just, you're kind of out there. <laughs> he says, but there is one thing about you. Your love for one another is so conspicuous. And I just, he said, I wanted to say that to you. And we were really, we were really close to one another. There was a great bond there. And it shows. And, and the Christian faith is of such that our love for one another is and should be an example. Oh, what did John say in his epistle? Turn, turn back to 1 John chapter uh, 4, verses 16 through 18. 1 John 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, And we have, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God's love abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. I want you to take a look also at, at 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. We know love by this. By what? Well, here's the this. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, there's your little children. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's not so much, it's, that it's not so much what we say, it is what we do. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't say to one another, we, you know, we love one another verbally. But the, the bottom line is going to be always this. It's not so much what I say, it's, it's what I'm going to demonstrate. In other words, if someone is hungry, if someone is thirsty, and I do nothing about it, then I'm a hypocrite. And actually, for later, then I'm a liar to say that I love God because if I love God and I see my brother 
or sister in need, that means I'm going to do something. My heart's going to go out to them. And Christians historically have been known, as Jess brought out this morning, who's the uh, first to uh, bring about hospitals? Especially they came about in uh, medieval times. It was the church that sponsored it. The church has been known to be a caring community. And it's what sets us apart. So this, this, this love that we have for, for one another is so important. And actually, it is the bond of unity. I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. That is what the world, that's what Tertullian says that the Roman world saw among Christians. That's what even in our day, when people look on us, and as a church community, that should be the hallmark distinguishing feature about us, how we care for one another. It is the perfect, it is, you know, the, the scripture in Ephesians talks about that the church, the visible church is a holy temple unto the Lord and with individual stones. So we could say it like this, that the mortar that holds the stones together is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, that perfect bond of unity. So what does it mean to be godly? Well, is it knowing doctrine very well? Yes, in a sense it is. But because I can memorize the scripture, because I might be able to memorize the shorter catechism, uh, does not in itself mean that I'm the greatest in Jesus' sight. Now, I'm not denigrating by any means because the, the premium that the Bible puts on doctrine. You know, Jesus uh, <clears throat> said that in being a servant to one another, sacrificing, loving one another, being humble is the greatest hallmark of the Christian. That is the example I set for you. So here's what, you know what our prayer, our primary prayer ought to be as believers? Lord, forgive me of my self-centered attitude 
please help me to be a servant to others. Lord, please help me to sacrifice on behalf of others. That should be our greatest prayer, really. And ask for the Lord to give us those opportunities to do precisely that, to serve one another. You know, talking about this relationship between doctrine and, and what is godliness, I'll, I'll never forget uh, in, in seminary, Greg Bonson, <clears throat> you know, when he would write letters to people that would question his theology, I have in my possession a personal 40-page letter he wrote someone, 40 pages. I've kept it because it's a theological treatise. It's what it is. <laughs> and the title is, Doctrine Leads to Godliness and Godliness Leads to Doctrine. He, he talked about the importance of the relationship of those two. You gotta know sound doctrine because Every doctrine of the scripture has its proper application, practical application. And then if you're, if you're living a godly life, according to the scriptures, it helps you understand the scripture better. In other words, it leads to doctrine. So being godly means that we know how to love one another. There were, you know, in, in the years that I've been a Christian, talking about this application of being servant and love, there are two people that have stood out in my lifetime as great examples of what it means to show love. <laughs> and both of those were not reformed in their doctrine. In fact, <clears throat> some were of a view of, of uh, both were had charismatic tendencies that I would not agree with theologically, but in terms of their life, it was my wife's aunt, Helen, who died this past year. And it was my godly aunt Lola who four years ago died. You know what everybody says about them? Their family, everybody says about them. How loving they were how they prayed for people, they cared for them. The testimony, when I was at the preaching at the memorial of my, my Aunt Lola, I, I, I knew about her daughters because I knew uh, they lived there in, in our hometown for a year, but I never got to see the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren. My Aunt Lola lived to be 95. But to sit there at, the, at that service and to hear the testimony of the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren say about their grandmother and great-grandmother and the love that she showed to them was just awe-inspiring, just simply awe-inspiring. And so <clears throat> it, it always comes down to that distinguishing mark that sets us apart from the world and from others, show, be concerned about the interests of others. Now, 
as we bring to a close here this section in, in John 13, if you look in John 13 at verses 36 and 37, Peter is taking up on the comment of Jesus that where Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't come, meaning, and Simon is really, is pressing on it because Peter says to him, Lord, where where are you going? Jesus says, where I go, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I go with you, follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Oh, really? Peter, you're going to lay down your life for me. Peter, I say to you, a cock will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, you know, Peter is so insistent. And the other gospel writers bring this out. When Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me, and Peter says, well, it's not going to be me. I can tell you that. (laughs) And I'll die for you, Jesus. Oh, really? You know, in fact, we, we read in, if you turn over to Mark 14, verses 29 through 31, you you get the other disciples saying the same thing. Mark 14, 29 and 31, Peter says, even though all may fall away, yet I won't. And Jesus said to him, truly tonight yourself, this very night before the cock crows twice, you shall three times deny me. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to to die with you, I shall not deny you. Look what the last sentence says. And they were all saying the same thing too. Not us. You can count on us, Jesus. Oh, really? Well, we're told Peter was so sure of himself In fact, they all were so sure of themselves, we're not going to deny them. Oh, what happened that's recorded in Matthew 26, verse 35, that when the arrest happens, they all kind of left, didn't they? And they left Jesus in fulfillment of prophecy because it says when the shepherd uh, is taken, the sheep will be scattered. So it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, I want you to see that for yourselves. Turn over to Matthew 26. 26, And look what verses 54 through 56 says. Jesus is speaking. He says, How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to be in the, sit in the temple teaching you and you did not seize me. 
But all of this had to take place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Ah, uh, they boasted a lot, didn't they? Peter, the, the champion of all the boasters. But you know here, when it, when it talks about the scripture being fulfilled and the disciples saying, I'm not going to leave you. Peter says, I'm not going to deny you or anything like that. We see right there, again, what we've talked about before, the relationship of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Everything that they did in fleeing Jesus at the arrest was predestined. It was prophetic. But whose fault was it? Theirs. It was theirs. They shouldn't have done it, but they did. And as for Peter, he boasts the most about them. You know, that's interesting about Peter because he was so insistent that about not denying Jesus. And Jesus says to him, it's recorded by Luke. Turn Turn over to Luke 22. This is Luke's version of the Last Supper. So Peter is so insistent, he's not going to deny Jesus. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In all of this, when it says that, you know, the devil's hearing all of this and it's, it's as if the devil's saying, You know, the devil can't do anything outside the permission of Almighty God. And it's like the the devil seeing, hearing Peter say this is, I want him, I want him, I want this guy. He said, just let me get at him. And Satan sifted him. So when... The servant girls say, oh, I've seen you with him. No, you didn't. No, you haven't seen him with him. Peter actually curses in denying Jesus. Curses. I don't know him. And just hours before, I'll die for you. And then a servant girl, twice they came up to him and said, I think you're one of them. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And then when the cock crows, then all of a sudden he realizes that's what Jesus said. And he goes out and just weeps bitterly. But there's a difference between Peter and Judas. Jesus was praying for Peter. Poor Peter. So audacious Peter. But I'm going to pray for you. 
And when Satan sifts you like wheat, I will, I will turn you back, Peter. I will. And he did. But Judas, though he is greatly sorrowful for having betrayed the Son of Man, went out and hanged himself. And as the Bible says, went to his place means he went to hell. That's what that means. You know, the scripture says, remember, um, after the Lord's Supper, Jesus, recorded by Matthew, Jesus goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. That's where he sweats uh, blood, thinking about what's about to happen. Comes back and finds his disciples asleep. Could you not stay awake with me one hour? Goes off, comes back, finds him asleep again. And that's when he says, recorded in Matthew 26, 40 and 41, he says, the, the flesh is willing, I mean, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. We can always have the best intentions. Oh, I'll die for you, Jesus. But when it comes to crunch time, well, we'll see. We may boast a lot, but when the crunch time comes, are we going to, hold, going to hold the line or not? And we falter. Jesus says, you need to pray that you watch and pray that you not fall into temptation. You need to be vigilant. After all, Satan still walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, according to Peter. And we need to be careful. We need to always be watching We've got to watch what we boast of, and we need, we need to focus on what Jesus says is how to be great in the kingdom of heaven. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another is I have loved you. And then he says, you know, here's the promise, and by this all men will know that you're my disciples. So all I can say here, brethren, is here at Chalcedon, though our numbers may not be great, you know, we can, we can set a great example to others how they see how we relate to one another and how we care for one another. And that's what we should be striving for, that kind of greatness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is so precious and so true. So be with us and, and, and grant us that desire to learn how to be better servants to one another. We beg of you for Jesus' sake, amen.